bad takes abound. Wow. An underreported consequence of the bad football game are the bad takes that ensue. And it makes sense. Bad analysis of what the Rams did wrong. Bad analysis of what the Patriots did right. And poorly thought out rationalizations for failures on both sides of the football. The failure to entertain. That was the great failure of Super Bowl 53. It was a failure to entertain. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Mm, No. And when it comes to Super Bowl 53, it's important that we enunciate the word bowl. It was a Super Bowl. But you can't tell that to Trey Wingo. Because Trey Wingo not only believes that it was a good game, that it was entertaining, it was good football. Are you not entertained? And that's fine. A lot of people think that. Those people are wrong, but it's an opinion. You may enjoy the aesthetics of the punt formation. You may prefer punts to touchdowns. I don't. I find touchdowns pretty close to infinitely more entertaining than punts. So let's just say I disagree with Trey Wingo. But calling the Super Bowl a good game wasn't the egregious Trey Wingo take. The analysis I object to is that sports fans and analysts and players themselves even are not allowed to express discontent with the game, waving a castigating finger at the critics of Super Bowl 53, telling me to shut up, telling my father to shut up, telling my daughter to shut up. My daughter loves the Patriots. And she enjoys football more than any seven-year-old I've ever seen. If football is on the television, she gets locked in. AFC Championship game. She was a walking zombie. Her eyes, 85% shut. Yet she was persevering. And eventually she just collapsed. She said, I can't do this. I have to go to bed. And she missed the Patriots' victory in overtime. But she called it a night at halftime this Sunday. She said, you know what? I've had enough. That's okay. I'm good. Another punt, Daddy. Is Sean McVay tilting? It's just kind of boring. Well, that's exactly right! In this way, my seven-year-old daughter knows more about football than Trey Wingo because that's what's important. Trey Wingo works for ESPN. The E in ESPN stands for Entertainment Sports Network. Entertainment is first, and that game was not entertaining. Are you not entertained? Still nope. And the reason why it deserves the criticism is because so many of the football games, especially late in the playoffs, were exciting, were compelling, where we were treated to feats of athletic brilliance and specifically offensive execution that takes your breath away. That's when the NFL is at its most compelling. Punts do not make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up straight. They just don't. Stepping up into a defender and one-hopping it to your backup tight end is not inspiring. That's why we tune in. We tune in to be inspired. And the NFL has raised the bar. The level of expectation is so high now. The product has been vastly improved the last couple years. Why? Because the NFL has invested in changing the way the game is played. Enduring criticism going all the way up to the President of the United States on Twitter, ripping the NFL for slowing down its game with too many penalties. Phantom unnecessary roughness. Pass interference. All of those calls in previous years 
We're investments into the product we're enjoying now. Retraining veteran football players used to playing the sport a certain way to focus more on the ball than the man and avoid certain high injury zones of quarterbacks in the pocket and defenseless receivers. I agree with all of it. One of the most sound investments the NFL has ever made were these rule changes that they actually implemented in spite of loud objections going all the way up to the president of the United States to unlock the game and deliver the NFL regular season and playoffs that we all enjoyed. I watched very few of the games, but I did hear about them. To keep watching, even in the AFC Championship game, where bad football was played for three quarters, and then rising up out of the sludge, one of the best quarters of football was revealed to us with overtime in the AFC Championship game. We endured bad football in hopes that at some point in the game, great football would be unleashed. That's the expectation. That's the new norm in the NFL. But Trey Wingo said, hey, you don't enjoy this. Just turn it off. Just turn it off at halftime. Don't watch the third and fourth quarter, football fans. If you don't like it, don't watch. Oh, we like it when it's good. We just never know when the good football will be revealed. And sometimes the fourth quarter can expire and good football never happens. And at that point, the truth tellers, both among NFL fans and in sports media, can state the obvious. There's a bad game. It's not only our right as sports media personalities and football fans to express this opinion. It's also simply correct. And Trey Wingo is every kind of wrong, insisting it was good football and that we need to shut up. Here he is. What drove me crazy yesterday including some of our colleagues here. Oh, this game is boring. <laughs> oh, entertain oh, yeah. me. Please make me want to watch. That so much shut up. Ask? Just shut up. If you don't want to watch, then don't watch. Go watch the Raptors and the Knicks. Go do something else. But don't sit there for four flipping hours with your eyes glued to the game and say, Oh, this is so boring, but I can't stop watching. Oh, it's so boring. Just shut the hell up. Wow, okay. I mean, give me a break. If you don't want to watch it, then don't watch it. But don't watch the game and sit there and go, oh, I hate it. That's the worst. And you people that did that, you're the worst. The absolute worst. Yeah, Jerry, we'll tell them. I don't want to hear any of that garbage. If you don't want to watch the game, don't watch the game. But don't sit there watching the game and saying, Oh, I'm so bored. I can't take it anymore. Give me a break. Oh, ESPN so wanted this video to go viral. Posting it on every ESPN social property. And yet it fizzled. I saw a comment here. I saw a comment there. And then nothing. Its virulence was subdued for two reasons. A, it's Trey Wingo. And Trey Wingo's not the yell into the microphone guy. So it came off contrived. The collective consciousness of social media is a highly intelligent organism. It can sense true, genuine emotion from a contrived ratings grab. You cannot engineer a viral post or video or article. If it's not organic, it's never going to happen. No matter how many properties and millions of followers you push it out to. But there's another reason why that rant never went viral. Because that rant's already been done. It was Chris Russo Redux. When I first heard it, I thought, who is this person doing the most cringeworthy Chris Russo impression I've ever seen or heard? Oh, it's Trey Wingo. That makes perfect sense. 
Trey Wingo scolding me for telling the truth about a football game. Which, by the way, is my duty as an NFL analyst. Shut the hell up! Shut up! Keep your mouth shut! Your son got nailed! Keep your freaking mouth shut! Uh, frame gate my Keep your... Shut up! Stay low! Shut the hell up! Frame gate! You mean, are you kidding me? Ah, uh, come on, the guy cheated, folks. I mean, let's be honest. Frank, I gotta listen to Tom Brady's old man now, who, you know, has lived in the bubble, you know, and has lived under the scenario where his kid's been a phenomenal player all this time, and now he's trying to make excuse, now he's trying to disparage the guy who spent 246 pages writing about it! Shut up! Put that guy on! See if he's got the guts to talk to somebody's gonna ask him a tough question. Go ahead! Better yet, put his son on! Let's see what he has to say! Put your son on! Don't hide! USA Today! Uh, come on! Come on, talk shows! Hey, come on now! Come on right now! <laughs> say that to me! Say that to anybody! <laughs> say it to somebody! Now I've seen and heard it all. And that Chris Russo rant was not the original Chris Russo rant. That Chris Russo rant was played on a loop on the Dan Lebertard show. The Dan Lebertard show that has since surpassed Golik and Wingo. Because when it was Mike and Mike, they were the number one sports show in America. And all along, the Lebertard show was rising, doing something different, a unique voice in the industry. And then Mike Greenberg leaves, it becomes Golik and Wingo, and suddenly that show is parked in second place. And their response to being parked behind the Lebertard show is to do a microwaved rendition of a four-year-old Lebertard show segment? Like, that's their answer to the Lebertard show's popularity? Shut up! Keep your mouth shut. Shut the hell up. So much shut up. Just shut up. Just shut the hell up. Shut up. Keep your mouth shut. Shut the hell up. So much shut up. Ask. Just shut up. Just shut the hell up. Shut up. Keep your mouth shut. Shut the hell up. So much shut up. Just shut up. Just shut the hell up. Trey Wingo, fraud. You're not going to win back the crown by impersonating the king. The only way Wingo and Golik can get back to number one is by being original, by doing something truly different. But that show doesn't do different well. They're not even good hacks. Just shut the hell up. If the hacked content is this bad, the original programming must be an abomination on the Entertainment Sports Network specializing in bad takes because we can't talk about ESPN without talking about Mike Clay. Mike Clay's signature Twitter rant focused on Sean McVay. He wrote, imagine having the take that Sean McVay is a bust or overrated. Dude has developed an elite offense, is 26 and 10, and has already coached in four playoff games, including a Super Bowl. Well, he certainly has good players. Both the best offensive line and the best defensive line in football this year certainly helped. And it's not like my sports takes are infallible, by the way. I predicted the score will be 34-20. Rams, 34-20. There were 16 total points scored in the game. So I got it all kinds of wrong. I got the pace of play wrong and the game script wrong. If you get both the pace of play wrong and the game script wrong, you're going to be very, 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 very wrong. Extremely wrong. The wrongest kind of wrong. I said play Todd Gurley. I said play James White because I thought the game script would be flipped. But that's just me making an inaccurate prediction. That's not me admonishing others, Trey and Mike. 
No one is saying Sean McVay is a bust. No one is saying Sean McVay is a bust. No one. Not a single person in America, not a single fan of the NFL worldwide believes Sean McVay is a bust. No one would say that. But he is absolutely overrated. It's not that Sean McVay is a bust slash overrated. Those are two totally different concepts. Mike Clay admonishing me on Twitter by conflating two unrelated concepts is when I have to speak up. The thing I like laying such a disproportionate amount of my criticism at the feet of Mike Clay, I would love to criticize somebody else, but literally no other fantasy analyst is scolding me for saying Sean McVay is overrated. Because as wrong as I was about the pace of play and the game script, Sean McVay, what are you doing? Punting on fourth and two, what are you doing? We thought you had the probability charts in front of you. We thought you were a savvy boy genius coach. And then in downs and distances in game situations where there is clearly a probability edge to going forward on fourth down, you punt. And then after the game, he did the right thing. And he admitted that he got out coached. But this is the individual who has been labeled by consensus the brightest offensive mind in the league. And his team went out and scored three points in the Super Bowl. Like that happened. Three points, Mike. Three points. And all we ever hear is that Sean McVay is a boy genius. That he has a photographic memory. The most powerful mind, not just in the NFL, perhaps all of sports. He's right up there with Greg Popovich and Belichick himself. And then what? Run, run, pass, punt. Run, run, pass, punt. The absolute worst play calling sequence, according to Josh Hermsmeyer, on the ESPN property, 538. ESPN's a big company. And after a Super Bowl, especially a Super Bowl that wasn't good, you get the full range of takes. The absolute worst and the absolute best. And as wrong as I was with my predictions, my prop bet suggestions, my showdown lineups, I still won. The Podfather won on Super Bowl Sunday because it exposed yet another absurd coaching narrative. I live for this. I live for the wizard coach the myth of the wizard the myth of the wizard coach to be debunked and it happens every single season i just had to wait on Sean McVay i was waiting and waiting all season kept winning beat the saints in new orleans i was panic stricken and then ah <laughs> 3 points in the biggest game of his life <laughs> There's only so much a head coach can do with a puppet quarterback. Sean McVay went as far as you can take Jared Goff. But a coach cannot make a good player great. They can help them on the margins. But players are eventually exposed for what they are. Game knows game. And if you thought Jared Goff was one of these elite young quarterbacks, well, you were wrong. But Jared Goff is going to be the starting quarterback on a team with one of the best offensive lines and one of the best receiving cores for the foreseeable future. So while Andrew Luck and Baker Mayfield may surpass him on the dynasty rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, don't look for him to fall precipitously down those rankings. He's put together two productive seasons and he's only 24 years old. So slow down overcorrecting Jared Goff after that game. The Patriots did to Jared Goff what defenses have been doing to the Rams for weeks. Belichick talked about this. The Lions did this to Goff. Showing him phantom looks... And then once the headset's turned off, morphing the defensive front. They send in two defensive packages with every play. The look they show Goff initially, 
and the look they settle into at the snap. We've been talking about that strategy to beat McVeigh's headset gimmick for weeks. None of that was news. When that report initially surfaced, it was treated as revelatory. Roto Underworld Radio listeners have been well aware of that concept for weeks. The Rams didn't lose the game because they called too much 11 personnel, right? I heard that too. That's taking it too far. It's one thing to refute the idea that coaches can make bad players good, that coaches can significantly shift the outcome of the game based on their instructions, right? Great players make big plays in big games. The coach is not the one out there making the plays. That's the point. And you want to have your best players on the field. So this idea that the Rams fucked up because they didn't call enough 12 personnel, because in a small sample of plays defending 12 personnel, the Patriots gave up more yards per play. Like, that's the reason. So let me get this straight. You're going to put an inferior personnel group on the field based on a relatively small sample correlation. This is why coaches coach and talkers talk. I'm a talker. I'm not a coach. Can I coach the Rams better than Sean McVay? Of course not. He's really good. He can be really good. Definitely not a bust, Mike, and yet overrated all the same. He's not a wizard, but he's not an idiot. He's not overweighting his play calling with 12 personnel, pulling Josh Reynolds off the field in favor of Tyler Higbee. No rational play caller would opt to pull Josh Reynolds, a quality receiver, off the field in favor of a tight end. Why, to help with the running game? You shouldn't be running the ball anyway in most situations. So what are you talking about, 12 personnel? You want the best receivers on the field. That's the priority in today's NFL. We're passing is positive EV and running is negative EV. You score more points when you throw. You score less points when you run. And personnel packages that help you run better don't make you better, especially when your starting tight end is Tyler Higby. You want to get Gerald Everett in the game? Fine. Play him at tight end over Tyler Higby. The answer isn't playing both and sacrificing Josh Reynolds. You thought the Patriots had an easy time smothering Rams wide receivers? Imagine if they only had to guard two instead of three. But that's what we get, the hindsight bias-soaked analysis. I've been saying Sean McVay's overrated for two years. There's no hindsight. I knew it was a fact, and only now has it been revealed to generic football fan X. Finally, the scales have fallen from Joe football fans' eyes. And maybe, just maybe, if this narrative continues that Sean McVay is so bad that he's calling suboptimal player personnel packages, well, maybe we can get Brandon Cooks and Robert Woods and Cooper Cup at value next year in fantasy drafts. Oh, I'm here for that. I'm here for the overcorrection. And so is my guest today, high-stakes whiz, Chad Schroeder. I'm also here to put as many star players in the Hall of Fame as possible. If you're a star... If you're a famous player who makes big plays in big games and helps his team win Super Bowls, then almost by definition, you belong in the Hall of Fame. Julian Edelman is a Hall of Famer. Eli Manning is a Hall of Famer. It doesn't matter how good they are. They're famous champions in the sport of football. Eli Manning plays in New York and has two Super Bowl championships as a starting quarterback and a Super Bowl MVP. Eli Manning actually has two Super Bowl MVPs. They both should have gone to the defense, whatever. He has two. Eli Manning's name is in lights. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. Sure, you can find quarterbacks more talented than Eli Manning, maybe with even better regular season counting stats that will never be in the Hall of Fame. Okay, 
My response to that is, well, maybe those guys should be in the Hall of Fame too. Because the argument against Julian Edelman is, well, Isaac Bruce isn't in the Hall of Fame. Uh, well, put him in the Hall of Fame then. Of course he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And who started this conversation? Ah, that's right. ESPN's Adam Schefter. The hardest working man in sports. One of the hardest working men in the world. There's that spectrum at ESPN. They've got the best takes and they've got the worst takes. Thank you, Adam Schefter, for kicking off this conversation. Every time I find a player in a Hall of Fame conversation, whether it's Barry Bonds or Julian Edelman, my reflex response is, put them in the Hall of Fame. If they're famous enough, well-regarded enough, accomplished enough to elicit a conversation, then put them in. Enough with the prudish sports analysis. Now, that would have been a castigation I could endorse if that's where Trey Wingo decided to go. Yes, the sports prudes need to shut up. Insisting that Julian Edelman isn't accomplished enough to be in their Hall of Fame with their arbitrary standards need to shut up. It's a Hall of Fame. It's not a Hall of Stats. And Julian Edelman is one of the most famous and accomplished wide receivers in the NFL. He is. And the measure of accomplishment isn't number of thousand-yard seasons. You think that's what Marvin Harrison thinks about? Well, he thinks about a lot of things. I, I would never desire to get into the head of Marvin Harrison. Oh, no. Whew. But imagine you're Marvin Harrison, and you're reclining in a chair, smoking a cigar, sipping a whiskey. You're thinking about your professional accomplishments in the National Football League. What comes to mind? The number of thousand-yard seasons? Or what it felt like to hold the championship trophy? How it felt when the confetti was raining down on your sweat-drenched head. Where do you think his mind goes? Spoiler alert. The championships, man. What's so hard about that? It's what endures. It's what's in the record books. It's what we remember. Who cares if you reached 1,112 yards in 2010? Nobody cares. It's not important. But Julian Edelman being the reason why the Patriots won two Super Bowls, they don't win a Super Bowl unless Julian Edelman executes the greatest catch in NFL history against the Atlanta Falcons. And if he's out there dropping passes like Wes Welker, the Patriots don't beat the Rams either. How often is a wide receiver named Super Bowl MVP not named Jerry Rice? You're going to put him in a class with Jerry Rice and you're not going to put him in the Hall of Fame? What? Why, because you're counting numbers of thousand-yard seasons? Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you're not making it in. Didn't meet my arbitrary thousand-yard season threshold. <laughs> what? You're going to put Julian Edelman right there next to Tom Brady. If you don't, you're an asshole. Patriots have Julian Edelman in the Super Bowl. They win. They go face the Philadelphia Eagles without Julian Edelman. Because he's out with a torn ACL. One of the reasons why his counting stats aren't as impressive as some others is because he suffered a torn ACL in training camp, a broken foot that cut short another season. And this was after he spent four years apprenticing behind Wes Welker, learning the position because he played quarterback at the college level. His athleticism was that sublime. And during that time where he was the Patriots special teams ace, backing up Wes Welker, he also played cornerback during that time. The Patriots were ravaged by injuries in the secondary, and he decided to pick up the cornerback position for fun because Bill Belichick asked him to be a team player. And not only did he learn the cornerback position, he played it well. I mean, replacement level, but certainly better than a lot of guys. And you don't want to put that guy in the Hall of Fame? No? This is what's so maddening to me. You 
unathletic dweeb with a spreadsheet who has no idea what the experience of winning a Super Bowl is like? Because when they ask the former players, the former players almost in unison agree that player X in question deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Almost always. Ask the former players. They will say, absolutely, Julian Edelman's a Hall of Famer. But you ask someone who's never experienced, who's never been on that field, and started in minicamp and training camp and preseason, and then a 16-game schedule with only one bye week, and then playoff win after playoff win after playoff win, and then clutch performance under the brightest lights in sports, and then hoisting the trophy. So there are great players that have never experienced that. Hall of Famers that just couldn't quite get there. They get it. Unanimously want Julian Edelman in the Hall of Fame. You don't want to put him in the Hall of Fame next to Brady? Fine. Put him next to Joe Namath. Joe Namath belong in the Hall of Fame? Hell yeah! Hell yeah! He's Joe Namath! He's Broadway Joe! He was the man, the most famous football player and champion in the nascent years of the NFL when it was not America's pastime. It was not the most popular sport. He helped to build the league into what it has become. That's why he was there at the Super Bowl. But then you check the counting stats and you're like, 173 touchdowns in his career. A career high 26 touchdowns in 1967. Again, 173 touchdowns. That's it. 220 interceptions. His completion percentage was 50%. He was a 50% passer with 47 more interceptions than touchdowns. And you're damn right he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Because counting stats are overrated. And that's not what matters. What matters is the history. What matters is the magistry. Were you an integral part of the spectacle at the highest level as a champion? Or were you not? That's what matters. That's the true litmus test for the Hall of Fame. There's no matrix of production and efficiency that you must pass through to enter that hall. That's not how it works. But the self-righteous sports prudes, sports sadists, denying great players of pleasure over their phony spreadsheet standards. Why be petty about it? Is there a space problem in the Hall of Fame I'm not aware of? Is there? Are they running out of real estate in Canton, Ohio, of all places? Is it just too expensive to build on another wing of the hall? (laughs) You don't understand. There's such a boom in Canton right now. They can't afford it. The NFL can't afford it. Can't afford the space. Not enough space. So yes, if you are one of the most productive all-time players at your position, then sure. Even if you weren't a key component of a championship team, sure, you should be in the Hall of Fame. You were one of the best at your position in your profession, in your era. Isaac Bruce, come on down. Ocho Cinco. Why is Chad Ocho Cinco not in the Hall of Fame already? How is that possible? Not only was he hugely accomplished, he has the counting stats, but he was also famous. He was a face of the league. His was one of the highest selling jerseys in the sport. Kids wanted to be Chad Ochocinco. How is he not in the Hall of Fame? I don't know. But just stop holding up players that aren't in. Oh, this player needs to get in and this player needs to get in before we consider this guy. No, just let them all in at once and get over yourselves. Having Chad Ochocinco in the Hall of Fame is fun. Having Julian Edelman in the Hall of Fame is fun. It's sports. Let's have some fun. Yes, Philip Rivers. Sure, absolutely. These guys all happen to also be on Team Sex. Why not? Why not? What about players that never won a championship? We're not super productive over a long career. What about those guys? What about the hyper-efficient guys for a short period of time? Tony Romo? Why not? You don't think football fans would want to 
check out an exhibit on Tony Romo? Absolutely they would. So why deny them that? Oh, because you have some petty arbitrary standards. Okay, great. Good to know. Thanks. Adam Schefter's right. Julian Edelman at least deserves to be in the conversation. I saw a fascinating piece on HBO Real Sports about Adam Schefter. Whenever I see Adam Schefter, he looks puffy. He looks tired, haggard. He looks like someone who does not sleep and is always chasing. When you imagine a person who's not sleeping and always chasing, it's Adam Schefter. He's always chasing the next story. He's in one of the most competitive roles in our society. He's at the top of a mountain that a lot of people are trying to climb. You could argue it's the second most competitive job outside president. So Adam Schefter needs to be a maniac. He needs to be maniacal about being the best newsbreaker in the business. And that means not sleeping. That means having multiple phones on him at all times. That means never driving a car. That means never giving an interview without 10 plus interruptions. And just apologizing every time, just politely saying, hey, this is my job. I am always available for news. He works for us. He works for the American people, for the football fan. And you'll finally appreciate how well he does his job for us when you watch this piece. The most fascinating aspect of Adam Schefter's life is his marriage. He married a woman who lost her husband in 9-11. And during the courtship process, things were escalating, as they do during the courtship process. And Adam and his now wife reached an inflection point. And at that point, Adam decided that he was going to put on his journalism hat. He was going to go out and collect information. So he decided to call the HBO Real Sports interviewer 10 plus years ago. John Frankel was the interviewer. John Frankel also married a 9-11 widow. Adam Schefter learned that John Frankel, a fellow journalist, had found himself in a similar life situation. So he reached out to John and called him up one day. Said, hey, do you have any advice for me? Because I want to be the best father for her son. I want to be the best husband. Are there challenges that I can't foresee that I can get out ahead of? Looking back with your perspective you now have, is there anything you wish you could have told yourself before you decided to essentially step into another man's life? Adam Schefter admitted that that's what happened. He ended up stepping into a deceased man's shoes and has been borrowing his life ever since. So the interview was refreshingly candid for such a high-profile media personality. And at first you think, wow, that's it's incredibly thoughtful of Adam to reach out and introduce himself and to learn everything he can in order to be the best husband and the best father. But I couldn't help but think, does this align with the spirit of marriage? To be that calculating? But it makes sense. I mean, this is Adam Schefter. This is one of the most organized people in the world. Not just in the sports business, in the world. There are certain individuals, the way they're, they are wired to organize their life precisely. And that includes marriage. It's just that that whole exercise would have been antithetical to my romantic sensibilities. That's just not how I'm wired. I'm not a calculating person. To a fault. I've done some very dumb, impulsive things. So I thought about it. I thought, wow, this was really a, this is really how a scientist, a cool, rational scientist would go about the courtship process. Thinking, how can I optimize our happiness, our collective happiness? My soon-to-be wife, her son, myself. And now today, Adam Schefter lives in the home that the original husband purchased. They never moved. And that's part of the reason why, even today, Adam Schefter feels like he still occupies that man's life. And I get why he's content with this setup. 
Adam Schefter can't buy a new house. Adam Schefter has no time to think about buying a house. You think Adam Schefter would ever spend a moment on Realtor.com? No! He can go to Rotoworld.com, but he's not going to go to Realtor.com. When every waking moment of your life is devoted to your craft, they talk about how coaches are workaholics. No one's a greater workaholic than Adam Schefter. Maybe in the world. If you think about how much your job occupies your brain capacity, if that's how you define work, who could possibly be working harder than Adam Schefter? And so it would make sense that co-opting another man's life would be the simplest way for Adam Schefter to address this problem that he had. He had a problem. He was lonely. He wanted companionship. He wanted a family. How does the busiest, hardest working man in the world solve that problem? You co-opt another man's personal life. Adam Schefter is this Orwellian machine that is here to serve us, the football fan. And I appreciate him now more than ever because he can never live a normal life as long as he's defending his position at the top of that ecosystem. And speaking of the top of the ecosystem, Roto Underworld Radio and the Sonic Truth Podcast are the top of the dynasty podcasting ecosystem. Every event that I attend, every analyst I talk to in this business, it's confirmed. The Sonic Truth is the biggest dynasty show in the world. And one of the reasons why we have so many subscribers to playerprofiler.com is the dynasty rankings. And our season subscriptions just renewed and we had some, some cancellations. And I want to read to you a recent cancellation note. Oh, it's a beauty. The subject line is, I want my money back. Lance Gibson writes, first of all, I didn't authorize you to take my money. <laughs> Second, I wasn't impressed with your service. Really? Our subscribers insist that our rankings were more accurate and more frequently updated than they've ever been, which is true, that the data analysis is the best value advanced metrics data service ever conceived, and our draft kit was second to none. But I will allow Lance Gibson to have the opinion that our service is not impressive. So he wasn't impressed with the service. In all caps, I want my money back, and I want it back now. All caps! I responded and I didn't respond politely. I had to. I had to let it out. I had to let out a grievance. I'm not Adam Schefter. I'm not a sports cyborg. I can be impulsive. I can be emotional. Adam Schefter and I have a lot in common, but we're different personality types. I wrote back, to disassociate ourselves with a raging dickhead like you, we rushed to cancel your account ASAP in caps and are processing a refund ASAP in caps. I don't know why I chose the word dickhead. There were a lot of options there. Asshole was a choice. Fuck stain, another option. I went dickhead. Felt good, felt right. And I have some good news for all you Dynasty Leaguers. Anyone with an active player profiler subscription. And you can rectify that if you cancel. That's okay. You can just go sign back up. But just email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. And we will give you a $35 voucher to join an FFPC Dynasty startup or take over an existing orphan. You can take over an orphan now. The Dynasty startups will commence in a few weeks. And beyond that, if you're new to the FFPC and you have an all-in subscription, we'll send you another voucher for a $35 FFPC best ball free roll. Because that's the goal this year. If you're a seasonal fantasy footballer, you need to try best ball or you need to try dynasty. It's one of the two. Ideally, you get into both. Move up or down the spectrum. If you're a dynasty leaguer, try best ball this year. If you're a best baller, try dynasty. Hey, if you're a DFS grinder, try a seasonal league. Diversify. That's what I did. I may not have Adam Schefter's organizational skills, but I have some of his ambition. I wanted to be 
a trusted voice in DFS, seasonal, and dynasty. And if you can think of anyone that's doing it, email me, rotounderworld at gmail.com, same email address, because I want to get that person on the show. But today, we're going to talk to an FFPC OG, the best high-stakes player in the world, joining us today on the Roto Underworld Radio program. His name is Chad Schroeder. He is the sharpest player in the business, and you can follow him at ChadSCH23 on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program, an FFPC OG, high-stakes stud, Chad Schroeder. Chad Schroeder, you got to talk to me. How's it going, Matt? Happy to be here. Should, should be fun. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. We've had a number of our patrons request you on the message boards where you can request guests. And not only requesting you, but also recounting the leagues in which you've won or finished very strong in. So basically laid out the evidence. Hey, look, Chad Schroeder killed it again in high stakes. You have to talk to him. So here you are. Yeah, I, it, uh, it was my best year by far um, this year. But um, Wait, this was your best year? Better than the girly year two years ago? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I know that you uh, focus on the FFPC a lot, and I did well there. Um, I, I, I won the 10K league there, and I won a couple of uh, 5K leagues there and a 3K league there. And several high main event finishes there, but uh, it was elsewhere where I, I won a couple major uh, contests at their a couple of their competitors for 150k each. Um, so yeah, it was a great year. I don't think I could ever repeat it. Um, I got pretty lucky at the end with a lot of things that fell my way, just in general. Um, guys, well, just for instance, um, some mistakes I made, like not having Aaron Jones on any teams. You know, that was really concerning going into the playoffs. And I got lucky that, that you know, he got injured. Um, that could have backfired. Um, just Ebron I didn't have. That was concerning. And he didn't really do much in the playoffs. Um, just breaks like that on guys I didn't have. Um, they didn't get the job done. And then I got lucky on guys that I did have, like Damian Williams that I added last week and so on and so forth. They were catapulted me through. So, it you know, it could have went, uh, and I had, uh, you know, I had Jamal Williams, you know, that I added some after people dropped him, or maybe I held him on the few places I had him. So he ended up being productive there for a little while. Um, instead of Aaron Jones doing it, I was getting benefit of Jamal Williams. So just things like that, I, I got pretty lucky. So. Damian Williams catapult. I like that. I like that as a show title. So what about the Super Bowl? Did you have any stakes on the Super Bowl? Yeah, I did. I went out to uh, Vegas. Um, I, I've been a my, my career is uh, I've been a pro sports gambler for 20 years or so, um, and I specialize in prop bets over that time. So the gambling world is really coming to you at this point. Everything's clicking into place for Chad Schroeder. Super Bowl's day is my Super Bowl because I love player props. So I was out there and I. I uh, I had a, I had the under pretty big, so I didn't mind the game as much as a lot of people did, um, as far as watching it. But did you have the James White receptions under? Unfortunately, that's one I lost. I thought he was going to be more involved with the Rams linebackers struggling to cover guys a lot of the year. Um, so I I, had, I was actually on White pretty good size over on his receptions, and 
unfortunately that didn't work out too well. Well, thank you for saying that because we touted James White heading into the Super Bowl and he didn't fire because the game script favored Sony Michelle. It's just how it goes sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what was your biggest prop bet hit? Um, my biggest my biggest prop bet hit was oh easy. It was over right away. So um but Hecker Hecker over three punts. Oh yes. You had that. That's amazing. Yeah, that was. Uh, it wasn't much of a sweat. He did. It was in the first quarter. I think. <laughs> you cash in the first quarter on Hecker. I love it. So what the hell happened to the Rams, man? What the fuck? I've been telling people ever since. Uh, you know, some of my fantasy buddies in the industry that I talk to regularly. I, I don't think that they've looked the same uh, since Cooper Cup got hurt. I don't think people realize how just how important he is. I mean, he's no Julian Edelman for them in importance terms, but. On third down, he was he was that Julian Edelman type guy that would always seem to get open. And then it's also easier to to concentrate on Cooks and Woods a little bit more. Um, you know, Reynolds isn't a bad player, but he's he's good, but he's not Cup. Yep. So I I think that hurts him a lot. And and then I think that somewhere along the way, uh, maybe even starting with the Lions game against the Rams, the Rams really struggled uh, for much of that game to move the ball. I don't, and then the next week against the Bears, I don't know if if those teams sort of laid a blueprint to solving that Rams puzzle or, or not. But it, from then on, it just never flowed quite as well as it was. And I don't I think it's a combination of of Cup on third down being so reliable, and uh, and then Gurley not being himself either didn't help. Um, but uh, I, I don't I don't know where it went off the rails exactly. But I think Cup's a lot of it. I think it was a combination of losing Cooper Cup and the defensive adjustments. The headset gimmick where Sean McVay reads the defense for Jared Goff and tells him where to go before the headset is muted, that gimmick was taken away by defenses because they started calling two defensive looks in the huddle and then morphing the defense as the play clock wound down, and that scrambled Jared Goff. And Jared Goff's only 24 years old. It makes sense that a 24-year-old quarterback would struggle for periods of time in the league. And he just happened to struggle at the end of the season. You look at the number of 300-yard games he put up at the end of the season. He had one 300-yard game since they played Kansas City in Week 11. One against Philadelphia, who had the most injury-ravaged secondary in the NFL. So the writing was there. The writing was there, right there on the wall, that the pass offense just was not the same for a couple different reasons. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a good point on the uh, defenses, beginning to call two defenses and whatnot. Um. It was not a lack of 12 personnel that doomed the Rams offense. That would not have solved their problems. Their problems were much deeper than that. It was a much more fundamental problem. I wish I had appreciated that more heading into the Super Bowl. You clearly did, just betting the under. The easiest way to take advantage of something like that is to just bet the under. And I don't think it was Todd Gurley either. I don't think a healthy Todd Gurley would have helped them. What are the odds that Todd Gurley requires knee surgery? I I wouldn't be one bit surprised. Um, I was all over all the Gurley uh, prop unders, um, especially his rushing ones. Um, I just didn't think he was healthy, and and, uh, McVay's 
interviews, reading between the lines, he didn't indicate that he was all that healthy either. He was taking the blame as he's going to, to, that he needed to get him more involved, but he never came out and really said that he's healthy and he's going to be featured. And of course they're going to say he is. So new England has to game plan for a healthy girly. Um, but he, he wasn't healthy and I don't know, but if he concerns me going into next year as well, put it that way, there's a lot of mileage on those legs the last couple of years. That's right. That's right. In fact, we just updated our dynasty rankings. Guess who moved ahead of Todd Gurley on our dynasty rankings? Christian McCaffrey. I like McCaffrey in dynasty. I like McCaffrey over Gurley and just for next year. Um, just for next year. Yeah. Well, he's also two years younger and he was almost as productive as Todd Gurley. Now, when I was in Nashville at the Roto Grinders Super Bowl party, I heard from a guy who heard from a guy who heard from a guy close to the Rams that Todd Gurley is playing with a partially torn ACL. Wow. Ooh. I posted a periscope about that before the game, breaking that news as I go after Adam Schefter. Very interesting. I, if It's hard for me to believe that they would even uh, do that uh, to him, but uh, with all the money they got tied up, I don't. I don't know how much of it's guaranteed um, exactly, but... It's the NFL. They put it on the player. They say, hey, do you want to play? Are you a team player or not? Do you want to help us win or not? And they say yes or no. They put it on the player. They say yes. They take the Toradol shot, and they go play. And they say, oh, you'll have knee surgery after the season. But while they're playing on that partially torn ACL or torn meniscus or whatever it is, it's creating damage elsewhere in the knee. And it's also making them more susceptible to other injuries because they're less agile and able to avoid contact. So this Jared Goff situation, right? We talked about he's 24 years old. It looks like NFL defenses have solved some of the Rams gimmicks, but he's still good, right? He's not bad. I, I think he's good. He really showed me a lot in that Saints game. He really played pretty well in that game. Um, Saints have it. It's a pretty good defense and it's loud down there and not easy environment and he really uh, showed me something in that game because I know all the flaws that the Rams have, and he made some plays with his legs to extend the game or to evade the pressure to be able to find a guy. Um, That's right. He, he played really well in that game. He got in the zone in that game. He got in the zone in that game, and he never found a rhythm in the Super Bowl. That's what happened. Yep. Now, what about Sean McVay? He didn't get into a rhythm with his play calling either. Run, run, pass. Run, run, pass. The worst play calling sequence you can draw up. Yep. Is he overrated? I, I don't think there's any question he's overrated. Um, there it is. But there it is. That's true. That's a fact. That is factually accurate. But I also think it can be both that he's still a damn good coach and overrated. But. He's above average and he's overrated, and that's fine. Both things can be true. Is Tom Brady the greatest football player of all time? We're just doing cliche hack sports radio right now. <laughs> Oh, man, I hate the Patriots so much. But he's the best football player of all time. You have to admit that. Yep, he is. That's a fact. The question then becomes, is he better than Jordan? And I don't want to have that conversation now. Is Rob Gronkowski washed? He, he either is very uh. washed or he's very playing very injured. I don't um, – he, you know, it really pained me. I was out at the, the DraftKings Sports Betting Championships, and I was in trouble with my bankroll, so I had to take a serious – shot to get back in it against the Chargers. I put my whole role on Gronk to have the first touchdown and they targeted him down there and you in the past you would have just shredded that guy that held him. 
That's right. Um, and <laughs> it looks like he's running around with a piano on his back. I don't know. I, That's true. I, he's also going to be 30 years old. He has fallen in the dynasty rankings below David Njoku, Hunter Henry, and O.J. Howard. And I think that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Especially O.J. Howard. I think O.J. Howard will be my highest owned tight end this coming season, taking advantage of the Bruce Arians doesn't target tight ends myth. Do you think that ignoring coach-centric analysis provides a strategic advantage for those that simply disregard it? In that case, I do. For one, let's look at who uh, Arians' tight ends were over the years. He didn't really. Thank you. I mean. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. There were articles written about Kyle Shanahan's inability to get the tight end involved. And then George Kittle happened in 2018. So get out of here with the coach correlation traps, especially with the tight end analysis. I agree. And Howard's a good player. Um, he'll, he'll all, he might be my highest owned by a long ways. We'll, we'll have to just see where yes, he's going. Yes. Yes. I love how this is going. Julian Edelman, Hall of Famer. I don't, uh, have his stats and all that in front of me. They're not that good. He has a couple thousand yard seasons. Big deal. In my book, he is because um, it seems like football is such a playoff oriented sport when it comes to declaring Hall of Famers. So if you're going to go with that, now he's got an MVP to his name as well. Um, I think he is. But I was trying to trap you with my attitude on that question. He's absolutely a Hall of Famer. There's no doubt about it. He won the Super Bowl MVP. And without Julian Edelman making plays... The Patriots don't win two of their six Super Bowls. He is a Hall of Famer. He's accomplished. He's famous. He's a multi-time champion. He's a Super Bowl MVP. Put him in the Hall of Fame and get these sports prudes out of here with their arbitrarily high standards for the Hall of Fame. Everyone wants to go to the Hall of Fame and see Julian Edelman's bust with that beard. It'd be fun. On Edelman. Why can't anybody ever seem to do anything with him at the line of scrimmage? How does he... It looks like he's playing like Canadian football where he gets a running start every time. It's just amazing to me that nobody can seem to uh, do anything with him, jamming him at the line of scrimmage. He's slippery, he's agile, and he has incredible instincts. You know, he's just a great football player, man. Some people have that je ne sais quoi, understanding how to take advantage of creases and crevices on the football field, how to get leverage on defenders. And no matter where defenders line up against him, he finds a way to create space. I can't explain it. The next-gen stats can't explain it, but he's good. Put him in the Hall of Fame. The bigger the play is, the better he is at it, too. It's just amazing. It is. He has the greatest catch in the history of the NFL. The catch he made falling down. Oh, yeah with three Falcons around him a couple of years ago in one of the most clutch spots in Super Bowl history will go down as the greatest catch of all time, both on degree of difficulty and clutch factor. So looking back at fantasy football, because this technically is a fantasy football show, although I do love cliche sports radio, what's the greatest lesson you learned that you'll carry over into this fantasy football season from last season? One thing I have to just keep pounding into my head, and I didn't make the mistake a ton of times, but um, just do not draft big running backs. Um, like, I look back, why did I draft Jordan, you know, Howard some? Um, yeah, just say no to plotters, Chad. Yeah. Just say no. Just say no to Alex Collins. Just say no. I drafted Jamal Williams some. You drafted him, you dropped him, you picked him back up. The, the pick back up was just strictly on volume. The bottom line is you didn't need to draft him. Right, right. That's true. Yeah, we emphasize, even in half PPR leagues, running backs to catch passes. So two years ago, you came on the show, 
and you defined your fantasy football draft strategy as something like an ADP grounded best positional value approach and it's been working for you is that still how you approach your drafts where you're tethered to the ADP but you are looking to draft particular positions in particular rounds yeah very much so um I did uh I did make a few exceptions uh this year um namely uh Christian McCaffrey um I elevated him uh almost every time over several guys that were higher on the ADP list um the bigger the draft was the, in dollar amount, the more aggressive I would be doing that. Um, but if you had the 111 and the 112, sometimes you couldn't get him. Correct. Were you drafting Christian McCaffrey over Saquon Barkley last year? I was uh, I was the last two weeks before the season. It worked out. They were both incredibly productive. Yeah, I was just a little bit scared of uh, – I don't like drafting first-round guys that are going in the – that are you know injured right when the – season's getting ready to start um that's true yeah just say no to injured players that's another rule of thumb that rarely leads me wrong there's no guarantee barkley was going to be unbelievable i thought he would be pretty good but um and his legs just look like an injury waiting to happen to me as it is and he was already injured um his his legs are so big i just don't know how he can avoid some sort of muscle injury he's also on the giants my only concern with saquon barkley was that he's on the giants yeah and that did cap his upside but his upside is best running back in all of fantasy and being on the giants throttled him slightly but i mean he has 28 fantasy points per game potential if he's on an offense that's scoring points and creating wide running lanes um i had wayne gallman he was probably my most owned player um, as a result of, uh, you know, that injury and it didn't ever work out. And I, I, uh, Gallman and Gallman's a guy that impressed me during the preseason. He looked like he got better, um, a little quicker and, and he's a good receiver. So I, and there was nothing standing his way, Jonathan Stewart. Um, Whoa. so that's what I look at in a, in a handcuff running back is you beat that drum. You, you gotta have a full load capable, uh, guy that can actually, step into a role and be a high volume guy yeah wayne gallman 215 220 he could handle a primary back role in the nfl but we're hoping saquon barkley stays healthy absolutely so we talked to nelson souza your friend last season he's another high stakes wonderkind and he talked about his do not draft list players he just refuses to draft at any adp do you have such a list no not really um but i'll i'll have a I don't. I have a mental list of how you know I'm willing to take any player, but there, but certain guys are going to have to fall a lot further than others, so it usually wouldn't come into play anyways. Um, but Nelson's list is extensive, um, and he's very stubborn. And they just him and his partner Dave Hubbard, they just they won't draft a guy no matter how far he falls. Um, and it works out. It's if Alex Collins is on that list, then that was smart. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you attack the running back position specifically in drafts last season? Okay, so uh, if I had a if I had an early draft pick, um, I, I was taking Gurley every time, and and then um, I actually had David Johnson a fair bit because um, I couldn't figure out a way to get around it um, without ended up being too heavy on guys. You know, with a gun to my head, I might have thought McCaffrey would be better, but I wasn't going to start jumping him up to the two one two hole. Um, so I had Elliot some, and I had Antonio Brown some, I had a very little bit of Kamara, I had Barkley, I had Fournette, you know, I had all the, just my, my allotment of all these guys. 
So I wouldn't lose in the first round. Your lesson learned strikes again. Avoid the big one-dimensional running backs, and Leonard Fournette personifies that archetype. Yeah, and luckily I got I liked Fournette, uh, and then luckily I got off him, and it was because of Christian McCaffrey. I ended up putting him above Fournette every time, and that right. luckily that got me off Fournette um, in the big leagues. So what about later as the draft played out? How did you attack running back? Later as the draft played out, um, the key to my success this year was James Conner. I had him every time almost that I could get my hands on him. The price did start to get, rise as we got closer to the season, especially in the earlier ones that I drafted. I had him on almost every team um, because I and I did it because I thought he was an elite handcuff, whether Bell came back or not. Um, and I, and guys that are holding out and stuff, I think they're at a much higher injury risk in the first place. That's right. Um, even, even though Bell didn't really get hurt last year in a similar situation, but I just thought he was very high injury risk. And I thought Connor would be, do a great job if that happened. And then it just turned into more and kind of got lucky, but. So you pounded running back in the first couple rounds and then just stockpiled your bench with upside upside running backs that could handle a full workload, whether it be James Conner or Wayne Gallman. Now, Lat Murray isn't my preferred type of running back, but I did have some of him. He had a career year. When you look at Latavius Murray's efficiency, he had a career year last season. He did. Um, it, 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 he, I shouldn't even bring him up because he's not really the type of handcuff running back I want, but I, I just so didn't believe in Dalvin Cook last year but he still commanded 26 targets out of nowhere in a pure backup role where in some games he was rotating one for one sharing the touches down the middle with cook to soak up 26 targets was impressive and he has a 115.897th percentile speed score so he's not a plotter he's a fast running back that can catch passes when called upon and if the vikings offensive line was anything other than one of the worst in the league he would have been even more productive. Dalvin Cook would have been even more productive. Dalvin Cook now, heading into 2019, is a strong buy. Now that he'll be more than a year removed from the ACL surgery, he has an all-purpose skill set. The Vikings are destined to improve their offensive line. It's their biggest need in the offseason. They upgraded the quarterback to previous seasons, so the offense is more efficient. There's more red zone opportunities. All they need is better run blocking, and Dalvin Cook can be a top five running back in the NFL. Absolutely, yeah. So he may be your Christian McCaffrey this year. It's not about how I attacked it so much as it is how I avoided it. And a big key to the season is in that third, fourth round territory, there's a whole bunch of landmines. That was the wide receiver value den. Yeah. So instead of taking Alex Collins and both Freemans, Denver and Atlanta, um, I did get involved with Kenyon Drake a little bit because I thought that he had the skill set that if they use him right, um, but that didn't go my way. Um, but no, you were wrong about that. Yep. Um, but I'm more. I'm, I can live with myself being wrong about a guy that I believe is a good football player than I can with a Alex Collins. You know. Yeah, low ceiling guys. Yeah. Yeah, in the fifth round, why you draft on a guy with a low ceiling? By focusing on running backs in the first two rounds and then stockpiling upside backs in the later rounds, you avoid all those bust running backs that accumulate in rounds 3 through 10. The bust rate on running backs in rounds 3 through 10 historically has been shockingly high. Yeah, and then 
then you end up when the injuries take place, the the coaches typically don't trust the third running back very much because he isn't good. Um, so then your your handcuff ends up with a bigger role than the starter had in the first place, um, and oftentimes is a better player. So. It'll be interesting where some of these running backs go in free agency this year. Tevin Coleman's going to be a free agent. TJ Yeldon is a good football player. He's going to be a free agent. Rod Smith is a good football player. He's going to be a free agent. So I think that there'll be some real value in rounds 10 and beyond in players like a TJ Yeldon, like a Rod Smith, especially if they land on teams with an ambiguous backfield. Yep. We know that Rod Smith and TJ Yeldon have the size to be primary backs in the league, and they've historically been efficient pass catchers. Rod Smith was right up there by Gallman. Um, on, he's, I had him on a, tons of teams. Can I give you a tip? Yeah. Rod Smith is significantly better than Wayne Gallman. I, I realize that. If O.J. Howard is my highest-owned tight end, I expect Rod Smith to be my highest-owned running back this year, regardless of where he goes, right? Because if he ends up on a team that does not have an incumbent back, an established incumbent back like the Eagles, well, his ADP is going to soar, and I might draft him anyway because I like the situation. I like their offensive line to experience a resurgence. They suffered through a lot of injuries on the offensive line last year. The offense will be more efficient and... There's very little competition in that backfield in Philadelphia for touches. So I'd love Rod Smith on Philadelphia. They might sign a Tevin Coleman instead, but Howie Roseman is one of the more savvy GMs. He's unlikely to overpay for a replaceable asset like a running back. So I can absolutely see the Eagles signing a Smith or a Yeldon. Now at wide receiver, you started pounding wide receiver in round three and four. How did that play out for you? It's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, the, my most owned wide receiver was by far a good one, and that went horribly wrong. Um, I don't really know how I overcame it, to be honest. Goodwin, not Godwin? I had Godwin a lot, too, but not as much as Goodwin. Phew. Goodwin doesn't sound like a wide receiver that you would draft. You're right about that. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of my peers that, that I think are better than I am, they were so high on him, and, and uh, it got me into a little trouble, to be honest. Um, I ended up liking what I saw in preseason too much and, and uh, just a bad, it was a bad mistake. He, he's too small and too fragile and too much of a one trick pony. He's, he's more, more of the same guy that he always was. And I got bought into it a little too much. So. You can't expect a one dimensional player to suddenly become versatile at age 27. That's just not going to happen. So that yep. was the lesson learned there. Any late round wide receivers that you remember hitting on? I had a lot of Galladay, a lot of good one, or a God one. Um, yes, there it is. If you did Galladay, Godwin in a league, you were in great shape. Yeah, and and then you mark, mix that with uh, uh, Tyler Boyd off the free agent wire um, tons of times. Um, so talk to us how you ended up with so much Tyler Boyd. How did I end up with so much Tyler Boyd? Um, it, pretty lucky, um, but it's a... It's a move that I make in a lot of leagues. Um, so for a lot of your listeners probably play in the FFPC, so I'll just go with that as an example. There's a Wednesday night bidding period that's the major bidding period of the week. Uh, you can, And then there's a Friday bidding period. You can drop guys that are on your roster on Friday that played in the Thursday night game as long as you didn't start them. So it's a great way to pick up. You know, if there's a handcuffed running back that's playing on Thursday night, that's how I typically use it. 
um, and then just drop him for a different handcuff running back on Friday. Ah. But Tyler Boyd was playing that night, and there was Gio Bernard was owned everywhere. You know, there's so there's no handcuffs available. So I thought, well, why don't I see if AJ Green gets hurt and have a look at Boyd and see what happens and. Green did not get hurt, but Boyd had a huge game that game and then ended up, uh, took me a little while before I trusted him to start, but uh, eventually, you know, he was just a great player all year. He is a great player, and we'll see where his ADP shakes out this season. I expect to be overweight on Tyler Boyd this season because of the presence of A.J. Green and the presence of Andy Dalton. No one wants the Bengals' second receiver. I think he'll be a value for that reason. He may slip out of the first 10 rounds. I doubt it, but if he does, I'll own him a lot too. But You're right. That's not going to happen. I'm just wishful thinking. But, but I, I planned on dropping Tyler Boyd on Friday. Um, but you got to take advantage of the loopholes and things that your league gives you. Um, and in a majority of the leagues, you can do that. You can drop guys that you didn't start on, on Friday. This is how the man with more Marquise Goodwin than any other wide receiver ends up having his best high-stakes season ever. Moves like that, leveraging the minutia in the league rules. So the tight end position, FFPC is 1.5 PPR. How did you attack that last season? I did draft Kelsey quite a bit. Um, uh, and again, it took a spot, though. We talked about this last time I was on the show. Um, at the FFPC, I look to draft my tight ends at a specific time when nothing is standing out at the other positions in relation to what is typically there when you're drafting. Um, and then that's when I looked at Kelsey. Um, in the third round, that's the only time I would take Ertz is if things kind of jammed me up and there was just nothing. So I'd be sort of leading out a new tier of player at the other positions. Then I'll look at tight end. Is it all right to take Ertz even though I don't really high on him? Um, yeah, I'll try it here. Um, so that's the best time, in my opinion, at the FFPC. You have to get it out of the way sometime. You're never going to want to do it anyways. Um, so try to do it at a time when there's nothing standing out at the other positions. Um, let that sort of be my guide. Um, the guy that I did end up being very wrong on, and I, I really am surprised by it still, um, this is where watching preseason got me into trouble. Uh, it usually helps me. you got to stop watching these preseason games, Chad. It got me. It got me into trouble this year on Burton. Um, oh, Trey Burton. <laughs> similar to the Marquise Goodwin philosophy, <laughs> you have a 27-year-old move tight end who weighs 235 pounds. He's just not going to ascend to tight end one status in fantasy football. He'll always be very fringy. When his ceiling is Owen Daniels, it's just not exciting. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. So he he was my most owned guy by far at tight end. And then George Kittle was my second most owned tight end. Thank ends. God. I was hoping you were going to say Kittle. Because you like explosiveness. Explosive athletes in round 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That's your Godwin, Galladay, Kittle zone. And OJ uh, had Howard quite a bit. It didn't really pan out, but it will one day. No, see, with OJ Howard, he had good weeks. And then he got hurt. You dropped him. He didn't hurt you. He helped you. That's true. And especially considering how bad the position was this year. Right. Um, yeah, he was fine, I guess. Did you draft anyone very late at tight end that worked out? No, not not that I can think of. Uh, like, I was on clay last year, but uh, was that two years ago when he was really? No, that was two years ago, but. Yeah, two years ago. No one was more disappointing this year in the NFL than Charles Clay. Boy, no kidding. Oh, my God. So, it depends on where he ends up signing. 
but I'm most intrigued by Demetrius Harris. Oh, that's a good call. Demetrius Harris Very good. is an explosive athlete with the size. He's not 235 pounds. He's not a Trey Burton. He's 260. So you install him as the every down inline tight end. He has the athleticism to dominate in the red zone. I want Demetrius Harris to land on a team that's upgrading their offense. So if he lands on a team like the Jaguars and the Jaguars sign Nick Foles, well, who else are they going to throw to in the red zone? Think about it. That's a good call on Harris. I like that. So quarterback, we have to talk about quarterback. What's your approach there? This year, my approach was to generally wait because there were so many guys I liked. So many. So the guys I found myself gravitating to were uh, Roethlisberger and Mahomes. Um, I should add Mahomes more. And, and, and then I was wrong on uh, Mariota. That I, I liked him very late. Um, well, he's very late, though. So what if you don't hit on him? You drop him. Yeah, exactly. And and then I ended up playing musical chairs. Um, when Winston was about to get back, I added him on where I was having a tough time at quarterback. And then, uh, then I added uh, Connor Fitzgregor and then back to Winston. It was just back and forth all... Uh, I think there's a good chance that Winston plays all 16 games next season, that the new coach is less biased against Winston and says, hey, this is your team, go play. I think Winston will probably be my most owned quarterback next year again. It's very possible. On volume alone, he's a top 10 quarterback. No matter how you tinker with the projections, he comes out in the top 10. And he, what a great number two quarterback to stream with a, a guy that you get your first quarterback that you don't take too early but if you end up if you have 20 man roster there's plenty of room for two Winston a great quarterback too um option to pair with whoever whether you look at the schedule and comp try to compliment him I Tampa's going to be a great place next year to look for for production it really was a great situation that you found yourself in you got a strategic advantage on the field you waited rounds after many were drafting Russell Wilson Drew Brees and you ended up with either Patrick Mahomes or Ben Roethlisberger, who were both top five quarterbacks at the position this year. One thing I looked at, you know, with when especially when Bell was looking like he wasn't going to be back for a while, and you look at it, and you got Antonio Brown, the first receiver off the board, and you got Juju Smith-Schuster, what, the 12th or 13th receiver off the board. Well, something's got to give. Either those guys aren't going to come close to that, or Ben's going to be damn good, or somewhere in between, which it probably ended up being. But um, there's just no way around it. Something had to be wrong there. That's right. Drafting Ben Roethlisberger was, in essence, ADP arbitrage. Because if you do the math on Antonio Brown and Juju Smith-Schuster and Vance McDonald, who's a great mm -hmm. late-round option, then Ben Roethlisberger was undervalued. So when's your first draft this year in 2019? When do you start drafting? Um, I used to start doing it around July 1st, and um, – I just don't follow football in the offseason religiously like most people do. Um, I just uh, I think it ends up giving me a, it ends up giving me biases that I don't need. Um, let me just wait and see what's going on when August rolls around and uh, it, and then I'll start drafting, you know, early August. And, and I don't have these biases in my head. You it know. helps you avoid rookie fever. It does. Yeah. It really does. Okay, I understand you're not drafting for a long time, many months before you start sitting down and drafting. I get it. Understood, Chad. But we talked about it already. Jameis Winston would be your way too early highest owned quarterback projection. Who would you project to be your highest owned running back? 
give me your highest owned running back in the first couple rounds when you typically draft okay. running backs, and give me what you believe to be your highest owned running back near the end of the draft. I think that my highest owned running back in the early part of the draft is going to be McCaffrey because I don't think he's going to be going number one, and I think I like him more than everybody else. So um, I think that McCaffrey I'll be way over on probably. I'm probably going to be over on Joe Mixon because I think that things broke very poorly for Joe Mixon last year. Agree. And like with Dalvin Cook, these are running backs that have all-purpose skill sets and their offenses are destined to improve in 2019. So those are the types of running backs I'll be targeting in the first two rounds. I agree on Cook and Mixon as well. Yeah, no question. They fit the profile, buddy. What about wide receiver? Way too early. Who's that wide receiver you're already feeling slightly locked in on? Um, I suspect that uh, I'll probably have a good bit of Godwin. Yes. Um, yes. I suspect a guy that I didn't wasn't as high on as, as some this year was Mike Williams. But he showed me he's a little better than I thought he was. Um, like when they played the Chiefs late in the year um, and uh, Keenan Allen got hurt early in the game. And he really stepped in and, and looked like he could dominate if, if he got a bigger uh, part of the action. I don't know what, how Tyrell Williams is standing in his way so much. but I would be careful with Mike Williams. Okay. If he were better, he would have commanded a higher target share earlier in his career as a top 10 pick, and he was never dominant at Clemson. He had the special-looking plays, but his dominator rating, his breakout age, none of it suggested that he was a wide receiver one in the NFL, that he was drafted in the top 10 based on vividness bias. I don't like to draft those, those Alabama and Clemson players in general because they get overdrafted in the NFL draft and then they get ultimately overdrafted in dynasty and in seasonal leagues. Calvin Ridley's going to be overdrafted. Great. I think that Mike Williams is going to be overdrafted. But a guy like Chris Godwin, he goes to Penn State. He's not necessarily a prolific producer, but in the context of that offense, he was dominant. Kenny Galladay, he went to Northern Illinois. So who's more likely to be a wide receiver one this year in 2019? Galladay or Godwin? I think it's very close, but I'm going to lean with uh, Galladay for this reason. I, I don't know why Godwin had to come off the field so much. I don't know if he's a little lazy and can't get himself in shape or just poor coaching, but you know Galladay can at least stay out there the whole complement of snaps. Um, but I, that's the only thing that I can really separate. And we, and Galladay was just a little bit better last year. Well, for me, the difference is I believe that Matthew Stafford will reestablish himself as a productive, if not prolific quarterback in the league. He'll have both Galladay and Marvin Jones, but Marvin Jones profiles as a complimentary receiver, a very high quality complimentary receiver, the perfect complement to Galladay. But in the end, Jones compliments Galladay. And in Tampa, in the end, Godwin compliments Evans, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. So with Kenny Galladay in that Mike Evans role, you have to expect him to command more targets and score more touchdowns. You also have to consider, though, there's going to be a pretty big gap in where those two are going, is, is there not? We'll see, because you know what's going to happen in preseason. Godwin is going to flash all over the place. Marvin Jones will be back. I think there will be an ADP convergence between them where Galladay will maybe go two rounds earlier. Okay. So I believe I'll have more Godwin for that reason. 
But these are two receivers I absolutely love. If uh, another place where I think I'm going to find myself gravitating to somehow, but it's too early to know who or what, but especially if Antonio Brown doesn't end up in San Francisco, right. um, some there's going to be some cheap production at wide receiver in San Francisco, most likely, whether it be Pettis or um, who knows, really. I mean, I might own a little bit of Goodwin again this year. And You could own Goodwin. There's a guy named Richie James who was very productive at Middle Tennessee State. He was a rookie, but Pettis flashed. Mm-hmm. Pettis flashed, and he was a special teams ace at Washington, and the special teams aces, whether it's Tyree Kill, whether it's Antonio Brown, whether it's Randall Cobb, they end up doing very well. In the NFL, Cooper Cup, right? Cooper yeah. Cup's the most productive special teamer in the history of college football. It's Julian Edelman, right? The instinctual wide receivers end up succeeding there. And some of those abilities, understanding how to get leverage on defenders and how to find the creases in the defense, the things that make you a good punt returner can also make you a great possession receiver. So for that reason, I like Dante Pettis. But they're also going to draft a wide receiver in the first few rounds. And this is a very strong wide receiver class. So we'll see what happens. Nikhil Harry, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Kelvin Harmon, any one of those wide receivers could end up in San Francisco because they need an alpha in San Francisco. Dante Pettis is a nice player, but he's a complimentary player. A.J. Brown and Nikhil Harry are true NFL alphas. So we'll see. There'll be a couple rookies that splash down in the NFL because it's a very strong wide receiver class and a relatively weak running back class. And we talked about it earlier. O.J. Howard, you believe, is probably going to be your highest owned tight end. Yeah, I think uh, there's a pretty good chance that'll be the case. Um, I really like your thought on uh, Harris. Um, I, he didn't come to my mind when I was thinking about it earlier, but that's a great call. Free Demetrius Harris. Depending on, on how the new... Uh, Staff utilizes him. If it's in a full-down role, it probably won't be. But I've always been intrigued by Seals-Jones. I thought he'd be better this year. Another move tight end, unfortunately. Not big enough to command an every-down role and not a consistent red zone target. I really want that out of my tight ends. That's where they do their scoring. And he, he didn't play well when he wasn't every down tight end this year. He couldn't block it well enough, so that probably won't happen. They have to take these guys off the field, and they can never get the snaps, especially in the scoring zone, in the paint, to be high-end tight end ones. It's just not in their range of outcomes. The Chiefs, like you said with Damian Williams, that was a great source of value in drafts, both Patrick Mahomes and Damian Williams and Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. Do you think you'll actually have any Patrick Mahomes this year, though? Probably not very much. Probably not. What about Tyree Kill? Do you think that he can continue to be this field stretcher that inexplicably produces like a prototypical X receiver? Even though he doesn't have the target share, he doesn't have the build, he still produces like Devontae Adams, even though their playing styles are completely different and they score in a completely different fashion. I probably won't have a whole lot of uh, Tyreek Hill. I I, uh, I sort of compare it in a way to when Cooks was going up in that territory a, a few while back when he went to New England. And, right. Um, he just isn't that type of receiver I'm looking for to pay that kind of a premium on. I'd rather have a more complete guy like Adams or Michael Thomas or... Oh, Michael Thomas. Oh, Tyreek Hill captures the imagination. And for that reason, the ADP often soars and you just can't get them. I think that Damian Williams will capture the imagination of many, especially if Kansas City does not invest 
a top draft pick at the running back position or bring in one of these free agents. If it's the Damian Williams show, if he's the clear primary back, how high can he go? He could go pretty high, but pretty high. But I just don't think I'm going to be able to buy into that. I, I don't. They're going to do something. I don't know. He's been going incredibly high in these early best balls. Like how high? If you sneak a peek at these early best balls, he's starting to go fourth round, maybe third round. I can live with that. I thought you were going to say second round or something. Well, no, but what I'm saying is the momentum is there. Even with all this uncertainty around free agency in the draft, that's how high he's going. So if they do not draft a running back early, if they do not sign a Tevin Coleman, then he could be early second round. Think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know how these guys draft. You know they're going to draft based on the Kansas City uniform and the role. I couldn't do it, but would, would you draft him in the early second round? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The one chief I would consider reaching for because he's such a strategic advantage at the position is Travis Kelsey. Same. In the FFPC especially. I Why not reach for him, man? He puts up wide receiver numbers. And another, uh, I don't know if any, some of your listeners, I guarantee you play at a place called like Masters Fantasy Leagues. And that's another place where I look to Kelsey earlier because when you only have an eight-man starting lineup, versus a 10 or 11 man starting lineup the tight end position becomes much much more important because you you can't make up that huge difference because you only have four combined running backs and receivers to make up that huge difference that you're gaining with Kelsey Um, so the shorter the lineup is the the more I like getting a good tight end and then obviously the FFPC with one and a half those two formats in particular I'll, I'll be looking to Kelsey quite a bit Yes, we talked about Demetrius Harris. He's by far and away the most intriguing pending free agent tight end. We talked about Rod Smith, TJ Yeldon at running back. Have you looked at this free agent wide receiver class? It is an abomination. Is there anyone in there that's intriguing you? One guy that intrigues me a little bit is uh, Conley. Oh, really? He was granted the dream opportunity, opportunity of a lifetime (laughs) for any wide receiver. Starting wide receiver, opposite Tyreek Hill, receiving passes from Patrick Mahomes, and he did a whole bunch of nothing. I know, I know. So it's difficult for me to feel any excitement around Chris Conley. Devin Funches may have had his Amari Cooper season last year where he just couldn't squeeze the football. He led the league in drop rate on playerprofiler.com. There's a chance that he ends up somewhere where he can be a starter and he can recapture his 2017 efficiency. That would be the only guy. And he's going to be available at the end of drafts. Yeah. And Conley is more of a guy that uh, if uh, injuries happen, a, a waiver wire guy, he's not going to be a guy you're going to be drafting anyway. So it doesn't. That's how bad the class is. Just goes to show how bad the class is. Exactly. Exactly. I assume Robbie Anderson will be a Jet again. He's restricted free agent. Right. Oh, yeah, that's where we're going. That's how deep we have to dig to the restricted free agents of Robbie Anderson. Robbie Anderson was a fantasy hero down the stretch. Did you have some Robbie Anderson last year? Yeah, a little bit. Um, but it seems like I didn't make the playoffs on the teams I had him on too much. I don't know. He wasn't a key for me. So a couple weeks ago, I attended the FSTA conference. It's now the FSGA, the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association. But I attended the conference as a non-member. I only go every couple of years. And you commented on Twitter that my badge read non-member, and you were impressed by that. So why should I continue to be a non-member? Well, 
I'm not going to tell you what to do because you got to do what's good for your business and, and all that. So, which might be to join, I don't know, but always, always what's in the best interest of playerprofiler.com and Roto Underworld Radio. No one can tell me what to do. Tell me what to do, Chad. Well, from I'm a player advocate first and foremost, and that organization over the years uh, has done a horrible job. They had an opportunity back in the day. Like I, I got stiffed by the World Championships of Fantasy Football for over a quarter million dollars. Many others lost a lot of them. Um, and they had a chance somewhere along the way to do something about this. They were the organization that could do something about this, put some protections in place. Um, uh, and they never chose to do anything like that. Uh, they've never done anything that benefits the players, safeguarding the money. There's been several companies besides the WCOF that's stiffed people and ran with the money. And this was the one organization in the industry that had a chance all along to do something about this issue. And they, they just turned a blind eye. And that has rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and then what's rubbed me the wrong way recently is, uh, you know, I play daily fantasy sports pretty heavily, but I'm more of a full season guy. And what they're doing uh, in the States is criminal um, to the from the full season perspective, they just completely threw the full season industry un under the bus, um, wrote all these uh, legislations up that were pro DraftKings and FanDuel. And so now all these smaller companies um, have to pay these outrageous fees that are season long companies and they can't afford them. And it's really hurting the full season business. And uh, a lot of this is due to the Fantasy Sports Trade Association. And it pisses me off, quite frankly, and that's why I've never been a supporter of them and never will be. Follow the money, Chad. Follow the money. The membership is primarily fantasy vendors, not players. That's what I'm saying for you. You got to do what you got to do. So I, I, I would probably uh, consider being a member. Um, if I was in your spot and ran a company like you do, being a full-season player, I would have discussions and try to use uh, your uh, – communication as a member to do things for the industry and, it, and it, it's amazing to me that uh, some of the full season companies didn't do more of that a long time ago but you know i enjoy the ffpc conference it's great for me my biggest complaint about the conference is their lack of brunch i love brunch what's your favorite brunch food item uh i like uh prime rib and scrambled eggs oh god and bloody mary's Prime rib. I always forget about prime rib, but that is absolutely a brunch item, and it is delicious. That's the time to eat prime rib at brunch. Yeah. And steak and eggs, baby. Steak and eggs. Why am I not surprised that the go-to brunch item for Chad Schroeder is steak and eggs? I bet that's what Christian McCaffrey eats. <laughs> We've talked about a, a bunch of fringe players. You talked about Chris Conley. Do you have another player that you qualify for truther status on, that guy you'll be targeting in the final round? Is that, this like your Jeff Janis? Right. Who is your Jeff Janis? Oh, boy, I mangled this a couple years ago. I told you uh, Johnny Smith, and boy, did he get a chance this year, and boy, did he not get He had a couple opportunities, but he was dropped by all the seasonal players by the time he broke out. I mean, he had games where he was a starting tight end and commanded zero fucking targets, Chad. I'm a, I'm a Johnny Smith truther. You could roll that back. I don't believe him anymore. He doesn't know how to run a route. I'm beating the drum again this year. I can promise you on Wayne Gallman, um, the guy will put up good fantasy stats, even though he's not a great player. His skill set will put up good fantasy stats if uh, anything happens to Barkley. And the presence of Barkley protects Gallman 
from additional competition on the depth chart. He's a safe handcuff. Exactly. As of February 6th. Exactly. They're not going to address it. And, and, and therefore, if there's an injury, then Gallman's going to get a huge load because they're not going to trust anybody else that they would have behind. If you're in deep early season best ball leagues, why not throw a dart on Gallman the end of a draft? Makes perfect sense. One reason could be is if you only have like 16 rounds in the draft, then. He- oh, no, no. In a 16 round draft, you would never handcuff. Yeah. But in a deep league, 22 rounds. Yeah, there you go. That's when it makes sense to handcuff and throw darts on players that need injuries like Gallman. He could be an RB2 if something happens to Saquon Barkley. So now, final question. I'll get you out of here on this. I need a very bold prediction for this year. Could be related to a particular team could be related to a particular player or is it just the NFL overall? I don't know how bold this is, but uh, I think um, I think San Francisco has a great shot at going to the Super Bowl next year. San Francisco has a great shot at going to the Super Bowl next year. So do you think that San Francisco could be this year's Kansas City Chiefs? Because we need to find this year's Chiefs. No, they won't be like this year's Chiefs quite, but they could they but the cost of the players to acquire them is gonna be a lot lower than the Chiefs were this year with you have Hell Hunt and Kelsey and Hill all in the first twenty-five picks. So there really won't be a Chiefs this year. No, but I, I look for Tampa to make a massive offense improvement. They are a strong candidate to sign a running back. That's a situation to keep an eye on because that could be a fantasy, really gold mine if the right running back ends up there. It could just be TJ Yeldon. Exactly. But he would be an upgrade over Peyton Barber. The Buccaneers are the one team that has a chance to be this year's Chiefs. <laughs> you don't understand. There's such a boom in Canton right now. They, just, they can't afford it. The NFL can't afford it. No rational play caller would opt to pull Josh Reynolds, a quality receiver, off the field in favor of a tight end. Why? To help with the running game? You shouldn't be running the ball anyway in most situations. Sean McVay, is he overrated? I, I don't think there's any question he's overrated. Sean McVay, is he overrated? I, I don't think there's any question he's overrated. Sean McVay, is he overrated? I, I don't think there's any question he's overrated. Man, I hate the Patriots so much. Yeah, just say no to plotters, Chad. You're right about that. Now you were wrong about that. Yep. Jameis Winston, he's best comparable to Ben Roethlisberger on playerprofiler.com, and he was a top five quarterback this past year, and they both have sexual assault in their backgrounds. One of our most apropos comps, other than Jared Goff as Master Blaster from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Sean McVay's the little guy in the backpack telling him what to do, telling him where to throw, and then he malfunctions in the biggest game. Master Blaster. Jared Goff, Master Blaster. You're right about that. Go back and listen and you'll hear a boing sounder within 10 seconds of talking about 9-11. 
this is like your Jeff Janice. And he did a whole bunch of nothing. I know, I know. Fuck stain. Another option. I went dickhead. Felt good. Felt right. You shouldn't be running the ball anyway in most situations. 